welcome to third installment of Damn It Jim, the podcast. Tonight we're going to talk about season one, episode three, where no man has gone before. I'm Dana Smith. Uh, along with me is uh, my co-host, Dan Calzaretta. Hey, Dana. Uh, can you believe we're three episodes in and we've had no hate mail? Yeah, well, it's it's early in the season yet so <laughs> give give the fans a chance tonight dan we've got what was really the uh second pilot filmed for star trek dana explain what that means what a pilot is and in, in case there are people out there who don't know that especially you know when we talk about television from the 60s and the 70s and even into the 80s and 90s pre-internet pre-streaming what was a pilot? Well, a pilot was something that you showed to the executives of the TV station uh, as a way of getting your show made. And the first episode was The Cage, actually, for Star Trek with Christopher Pike and Spock was in that. But uh, the executives at NBC, when they saw it, weren't completely sold on it. The comment they made, they said it was too cerebral. Yeah. Not, enough, not enough punching <laughs> and then shooting, yeah. apparently. Well, uh, Roddenberry had sold it as a wagon train to the stars. Yeah. They didn't want people in the show thinking too much. So that show was, was not picked up. And then, but the they fir- thought the first, the first pilot is that yeah, the first pilot, the cage. So they decided to recast the show and rewrite the show for a second pilot because NBC said they thought there was something interesting there and that uh, could evolve. They gave Roddenberry and his team a, uh, a second chance, which I, I don't really think happens a whole lot in those types of things. That's what I've read too, that, that actually it was NBC, I think at the time had put in $633,000 into the first pilot and decided it was not going to fly. They, Asked Roddenberry for a second pilot. The second pilot turned out to be uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. They've actually filmed three episodes up front. And uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before was the very first one. William Shatner became uh, Captain Kirk, as we all know. But he had competition. Jack Lord, who went on to play McGarrett 5-0. Can you imagine? Uh, him as, <laughs> you know what? Actually, uh, I, I could I- see it. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. I could really see him as as the captain of the Enterprise. But who was the second guy? Lloyd Bridges. I'm not sure I can see that one. You know, I don't know. Did you ever watch Sea Hunt? I you know, did. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, he was underwater a lot. Not sure I could see him in space. I could see the appeal. But anyways, they went with Shatner and they brought Spock back. They also brought in Gary Lockwood to play a main character in here. He's... Uh, Probably best known, you probably recognize him from 2001, A Space Odyssey. He was Dr. Frank Poole, uh, one of the first on the uh, space station to die. Doesn't he get locked in the airlock and then uh, Hal just lets him go? Yeah, just kind of ejects him. Yeah. He's like tumbling into space. That's a hell of a way to go. (laughs) But he was uh, a veteran of uh, TV series and some, you know, more minor movies. Been around since the late 50s. And then on top of that, they had Sally Kellerman, who, uh, again, was somebody that had been in uh, several TV shows and had done some movies. Later on, I think it was 1971, she would portray uh, Margaret uh, Hot Lips Houlihan in the uh, movie version of MASH. She just passed away recently at age 84. Uh, it was actually this past February. 
1973, she was also voted as a sex star, quote unquote, sex star by Playboy magazine. If only uh, Star Trek had known that then, they probably would have put her on your favorite planet, Wrigley's Pleasure Planet. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, my. But that's something to consider, Dana. I think we could ever produce a Star Trek show. It should be based around Wrigley's Pleasure Planet. I think it should be. There would be some pretty amazing episodes there. I'm pretty sure it'd be a hit. Well, maybe J.J. Abrams will contact us and say, hey, guys. (laughs) What uh, a great idea. Yeah, I I know you've been trying to get a hold of me. And let's do this. So along with Sally Kellerman and Gary Lockwood, there was also a uh, another veteran actor playing the doctor. It wasn't our friend Bones McCoy. Yeah, DeForest Kelly. It was Paul Fix, who was a uh, veteran actor of Westerns, mostly. He was the sheriff in The Rifleman. He uh, shows up in a couple of John Wayne movies, including the Sons of Katie Elder. He's uh, been in, he was just one of those guys that was just, uh, you turn on TV or film from the 50s and uh, early 60s, and Paul Fix was somewhere in the film. So, Dana, um, tell me, what, what is your thought about this? So, we've, we've established this early in the first two episodes of the podcast that we've done that some of the characters that played in Star Trek had been in Westerns. What is the connection between this Western ideal of the United States and the frontier and Star Trek in the 23rd century? Well, you just said it, the frontier. The West kind of had a certain limit somewhere. uh, Maybe it was Gene Roddenberry thought, how do I expand this? How do I put it out so that it's, it's limitless? And he looked up at this night sky, and again, I'm just guessing, and thought the sky is endless. It's the final frontier. But why don't we jump into the uh, actual episode? Why don't you kind of start to walk us through what happens in this episode? What's the event that initiates the action? So the Enterprise is approaching the edge of the galaxy, and they are saying that they've picked up a distress signal. And what it is is a recorder. When they pull it in, they're talking about it. Uh, We see Scotty for the first time, who's at the transporter controls. So they beam this uh, thing aboard, the Enterprise. Yeah. I thought it looked like an air filter from a car. That's what I thought it looked like. <laughs> yeah, with legs. I, yeah, <laughs> with legs, that. exactly. A, or an old-fashioned coffee maker, yeah. so Could have been a coffee maker. <laughs> yes, exactly right. They beam it aboard, and then uh, the uh, light goes off on it that's uh, starting to percolate. We move forward, and Spock listens to the tapes. He talks about, they uh, mention that they're doing research on ESP, Uh, that they encountered turbulence and some problems at uh, the edge of the galaxy, and they started researching ESP. And then he mentions that it sounds like the captain gave the order to destroy the ship. So this is the, what what is it, the USS Valiant? And so we know that this device that has been beamed aboard, it's giving this information about what happened to the ship 200 years previous. Then they decide they're going to go through the edge of the galaxy. Uh, and they encounter some turbulence. All of a sudden, the stations on board the ship start blowing up. Some fire erupts from the consoles. And then Sally Kellerman, who's uh, standing on the bridge, gets zapped, kind of gets a uh, colorful outline to her to her body for a moment. And then uh, Gary Lockwood, who's uh, Gary Mitchell. Mitchell. Uh, yeah. Yep, so Gary Mitchell, yep. He, he gets zapped and uh, he falls down. They make it through the edge of the galaxy and then they determine, uh, they check on Gary and he's got uh, silver glowing eyes. 
Yeah, which was really interesting to me how they did that. I guess as it turns out, they actually had contact lenses that these actors had to wear that made their eyes look silver. And during the episode, when he has those contacts in, it just looks really uncomfortable. Yeah, I was immediately reminded of something I read years ago. I used to be a Hammer horror film fan. And uh, you might remember Christopher Lee playing Dracula. And he... Uh, for close-ups, they gave him these uh, contacts that made his eyes, the pupil of his eyes look black, and uh, but they were like red, uh, like he'd been out all night partying. But these were contacts, and he said he couldn't see very well through them. In one of the Dracula movies uh, where he's fighting Peter Cushing in the end, he said he kept stumbling over things because he couldn't see anything because they just had basically like a pinhole for him to see through. And that's something that Gary Lockwood mentioned is that these contacts uh, were difficult to see through and only had like a pinhole. And he says that this affected his vision for the rest of his life. So he thought that they actually damaged his vision. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek, for all it's done for mankind going forward, might have hurt one of their characters. But anyway, uh, these two crew members, Sally Kellerman, who's uh, the ship's psychiatrist, and uh, Mitchell, who was uh, pilot are affected and have these uh, uh, ESP powers and Kirk has to decide between his friendship and the safety of the ship and that's really what this whole episode comes down to yeah I mean I think that's a really good point point. and one thing I think that Star Trek does really well they are able to create a story around friendship around loyalty and around like the greater good Kirk has called uh, all the uh, officers to the bridge to yeah witness going to the edge of the galaxy or something. And so you've got the doctor, which is Paul Fix, and you've got Scotty. Sulu is, I think, a physicist is how he's described. Yeah, he's, yeah, that's exactly how he's described in the credits. And then Sally Kellerman's introduced as a uh, psychiatrist. She uh, kind of walks down towards where Mitchell's sitting at the uh, controls. They have a little exchange and he turns to the uh, helmsman and says, uh, walking freezer unit. Oh, uh, Dana, <laughs> I tell you, this was cringy. We've talked about in the first couple episodes the depiction of women in Star Trek, but this part was really disturbing to me. And I was surprised the way he treated her. And you could tell that he was kind of a ladies' man. And when they start going through the edge of the galaxy, uh, Kirk's yeoman, uh, who he calls Jones, is actually Smith. <laughs> I love that part. He just he didn't even know what her name was. Yeah. She comes down and while he's helping to navigate the ship, he's also reaching back and holding her hand. Again, uh, which which implies that men are the powerful characters. A woman he, could not be a strong character. And this is a huge difference between this pilot and the original pilot. So in the original uh, pilot, the character of who was called number one is female. Majel Barrett, I believe is her name. Yeah. Eventually ends up marrying Gene Roddenberry. But this is, again, when the network looked at that first pilot, they said, no, we can't do this. It's too cerebral. But you really have to ask yourself, was it, it was only because it was too cerebral or was it also because we had these female characters who were strong, important, driving characters in the series and they just couldn't 
deal with that. Well, you have no, I have no doubt that all the uh, executives at NBC were men at the time. And so I'm sure that they probably sat and laughed when they saw a uh, woman really in second in command in the ship and at times giving orders and trying to get things accomplished because the, the captain disappears and she's number one. I totally agree. And, and then in this episode, uh, kind of along the same lines, we also see that every female character in this episode is wearing long pants. No female character in those very short, mini... Mini dresses, yeah. Exactly. They take Gary Mitchell to sickbay. They report that nine crewmen died during the uh, event. And it's important to note, later it's discussed that all nine crewmen that died had uh, high ratings for ESP. We're going to get into the dead crewman count in a, in a bit. But, <laughs> and we'll talk about this because it is kind of important. And there's a, a nice little trivia thing that happens with this. So the only two survivors that were affected that have ESP were uh, Mitchell and Denham which uh, Denim is Sally Kellerman. Mitchell gets put in sickbay and Kirk goes to see him and we find out that they're old buddies. But when Kirk comes in, Mitchell's laying on his side and he doesn't even look and goes... Hello, Jim. Right. Giving us, you know, the insight that he's uh, got something else going on there that he's able to see. And of course, he's got the silver eyes. You know, they have a little conversation back and forth about their days in the academy. Mitchell says, you know, I'm finally getting around to reading some of that long hair stuff that you used to push uh, back at the academy. Long hair. uh, (laughs) That's pretty interesting. So this goes to, I would say, culturally in the mid-1960s, we have a movement of the hippie movement, people who are starting, young people who are starting to resist uh, the Vietnam War. I mean, it's early in that process, I would say, but it's still there. I, I think long hair as an older reference, kind of thoughtful professors, people that uh, wrote books on philosophy and, you know, more artists. Part of that reference, I think, is kind of like the old masters. They, uh, they go back and forth uh, have a little discussion and then when Kirk's leaving Mitchell says something like I told you you should listen to me yeah it was that weird echoing thing that was happening yeah what I found was interesting about this encounter with Kirk and Mitchell Kirk says to Mitchell I haven't been worried about you since that night on Deneb 4 and Mitchell says yeah she was a Nova that one not nearly as many after effects as this time the implication to me is that there was some type of, I don't know, sexually transmitted infection (laughs) happening. I mean, I think that's very clear to me. There is no other way in my mind to read that. Maybe I'm just more of a romantic. I was thinking it meant like it hurt his heart that he didn't recover fast. But Oh, I didn't get that at all, Dana. Yeah, no, you're you're probably more right. But I was, you know, I was trying to go to a better place. So, yeah. but, but what's interesting <laughs> to me, though, this is the third episode we've watched, right? Yes. But this is the second pilot. This is what sold the network on Star Trek. And we see a couple of things here that are pretty fascinating to me. Let me break them down. One is how males are treating females in the 23rd century. Not any different from the 1960s, (laughs) right? Zero difference. The second is this sexual overtones that are in all three episodes. I mean, we've seen it in Charlie X. 
no question in my oh, mind, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty pretty specific as they talk about the pleasure planets and so on. We saw it in the first episode with very specifically with, you know, <laughs> the, the male characters seeing the female monster in different ways that reflected their own version of what the ideal woman was. In this pilot, which again was filmed before those other two episodes, we see this underlying and pretty blatant actually, sexism of the male characters toward the female characters and of the writers toward like women in general. Yeah, I agree. I think sex sells. And I, I'm sure they thought, okay, it's not just a wagon train of a bunch of dudes. Instead of brothels, we can create whole planets. In this episode, Dana, it is noted that of the 428 crewmen on the ship, which we learned in the last episode, that there are about 100 females on this ship. Not great odds for the women. To get back to the storyline here, when uh, Kirk goes back to the bridge and uh, talks to Spock, Spock is kind of spying on Gary Mitchell. And you see Mitchell is like reading, like he went through the Evelyn Woods course in uh, in a day. You got to explain that to people because you understand it and I understand (laughs) it, but... I'm not sure most people would understand it. Doesn't everybody remember the Evelyn Woods speed reading courses? Yeah, only if you were born in like the 60s, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The books he's reading are on the monitor, which uh, are connected to these cards, almost like a three and a half inch floppy disk. My guess would be it'd be like a two by three uh, disk that they were putting in. So again, Star Trek way ahead of its time. He is just flying through these. And Spock turns to Kirk and says his... Is this the Gary Mitchell that you know? Is that Gary Mitchell? The one you used to know? For the 24-hour watch in the sickbay. Fullest possible range of examinations and tests. Because Uh, they're spying on him from the bridge, essentially, right? They're looking into sickbay. They can see him flying through all this uh, data that he's reading from the ship's library. Denner enters uh, the sick bay. There's a uh, immediate kind of a liking between the two of them. There's uh, there's some kind of sexual tension going on between Denner and Mitchell. Yep, it's a hot lips Hulahan kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's not Frank Burns. They're talking about the, his comprehension of the reading, and she says, you know. Do you remember everything you read that quickly? Yeah. On any tape? Sure. Page 387. I love his wings, slender feathered things with grace and upswept curve and tapered tip. Nightingale woman. It turns out to be a love poem, and which actually turns out to have been something written by Roddenberry for his plane uh, when he was in the service. Uh, yeah, I, I read about that. So <laughs> he was in, uh, he was a pilot in World War II, and he wrote a poem. The lines were something like, My love has wings, slender feathered things. And that's about all they say in the show. I, I took at least an hour, maybe two, trying to search this. And I think the entire poem is kind of lost to history. So anyway, uh, we see that they're uh, developing a, a relationship. There's kind of an intensity between the two of them. Uh, they get interrupted by uh, 
crewman Kelso, uh, who's like the ship's navigator and they're old friends. Apparently he sees what's going on and kind of acts like, Oh, here's Gary again. Mitchell tells him the, to check the starboard impulse engines and says the pack points are ready to collapse. And when Kelso doubts him, Mitchell yells at him and says, you better check them. We change to the next scene where there's a conference room and Kelso's has this thing that looks like kind of a, uh, like a shock absorber. <laughs> it did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he calls it the points and he says, I don't know how he missed this, but uh, the points are bad. Sulu's in the room, Scotty, Spock, Kirk, and the, uh, course dr piper all around the room and denner enters and spock is saying that mitchell is uh, mutating and denner says something like so what's wrong if he's like a superhuman being with esp Uh, maybe that'd be good for mankind has he shown abilities of such magnitude i saw some such indications and you didn't think it worth mentioning no one's been hurt have they don't you understand a mutated superior man could also be a wonderful thing. The, the forerunner of a, a new and better kind of human being. So we've got this conference that's happening in the conference room, right? Yeah, uh, the meeting of the minds. Denner uh, argues that uh, no one has been hurt. Kirk asks Sulu his opinion, and Sulu says that the rate that Mitchell is progressing is geometrically. And it says something about as if you were to give somebody a penny a day, and in a month's time, they'd be a millionaire. So if I were to give you a penny today, Dana, and you double- I'm going to do math. I'm I'm telling you, for our listeners, do this. Just do this calculation. I give you a penny today. Double it tomorrow. How many pennies do you have? Two. Great. That's that's really- (laughs) (laughs) You pass. Okay. Double it again the next day. Four. All right. You go out 30 days, you will be a millionaire. Now, I know that sounds impossible. You will be a millionaire- by the end of the month. And that's exactly what Sulu is saying. I've got a lot of pennies. Well, you got to double them though, Dana. (laughs) So after Sulu gives us a math lesson, uh, (laughs) Spock says says that uh, Mitchell has uh, attained power that we cannot cope with. And soon we will just be in an annoyance to him. This concept of a superior intellectual being seeing humans as an annoyance is one that we encounter in science fiction since the 60s, but maybe even before that. You think about some of the sci-fi movies of the 50s and stuff, uh, along with you know the atomic radiation that made them grow uh, 50 feet tall or you know mutate. One of the things that would happen is if somebody gained superpowers, they saw everybody else as uh insects everybody leaves the room and we have kirk and spock spock kind of comes back to kirk and says uh you've got two choices but i need a recommendation spock not vague warning recommendation one there's a planet a few light days away from here delta vega it has a lithium cracking station we may be able to adapt some of its power packs to our engines and if we can't We'll be trapped in orbit there. We haven't enough power to blast back out. It is the only possible way to get Mitchell off this ship. If you mean strand Mitchell there, I won't do it. Then you have one other choice. Kill Mitchell while you still can. Uh, Kirk gets on the intercom and says, set a course for Delta Vega. 
We get to Delta Vega. It's slightly smaller than Earth, full of minerals and crystals. Mitchell, of course, since he has super ESP, is aware of their plans. And he even says, if I was you, I was in your shoes, I would kill me. Yeah, which I, I found fascinating. That interaction with Kirk to say that, you know, you need to do what Spock's telling you to do. Yeah, and so uh, Kirk and Spock advance on him and he knocks them down. He talks, starts talking about uh, Delta Vega won't do for him. He needs to find another planet, something like what a god could use. And uh, and that to me is, uh, and I think Kirk and Spock got it for, for sure then, that they were in trouble. They jump him, uh, pin him down, and Denner actually gives him a sedative to knock him out. <laughs> so uh, when, I, when I watched this scene, all I could think about was the scene in Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, sedative. <laughs> sedative. <laughs> because she almost jabs Kirk in the arm yeah. with this thing. That's the set again. And then they take him to the transporter room, don't they? Dr. Piper's there. Mitchell starts waking up and he says, I will crush you all like insects. That's a bad sign. Piper gives him another sedative, knocks him out, and they put him on the transporters and transport down to Delta Vega. So I got I got a problem with this whole scene. I got to tell you. So they get him, they give him a sedative, right? Which would knock a horse over. It's a long shot. He, he, he gives it's like, shh. I know it, it goes on for a while and then they stick him on the transporter and then they let go. So he's just on his own little transporter pad and he doesn't fall over. Are you kidding me? Come on. The dude would fall over. And so he transports down to the planet. And then as soon as they transport down, they like grab him before he falls down. Could you see if he had fallen off the transporter pad, they all transfer down and then he's on the ship. He's got control of the ship. You know, or only like half of him transports down. <laughs> I'm not sure which wow. would be better, the upper half or the lower half. Somehow he stands up through the whole freaking transporter thing, which I don't buy at all. And they get him to the planet and they catch him before he falls down. But I want to say Delta Vega, the uh, the backdrop that they use, pretty impressive. I, I really liked it. Looked like some kind of refueling, you know, maintenance station, something very uh, kind of sparse. Uh, and I thought they did a really good job with that. So, yeah, I mean, you figure this is 1965 when they're filming yeah. it, and it does look pretty cool. Fortunately, Delta Vega has a jail cell with a force field. <laughs> it's it's completely unmanned, but just in case you happen to be passing by with uh, somebody that needs to be in a jail cell, uh, they've got a jail cell with a force field. They've got him in this jail cell, and he tries to get through the uh, force field. It, it zaps him, another special effect there, and uh, at one point falls down, and his eyes clear up. Kirk right away was you know, Gary, he's like all excited that his friend is back. Right after saying that, he turns back with the silver eyes and starts making not so idle threats. Kelso is down on the planet. Kirk asks Kelso to uh, set up a button that if he needed to, he could remotely destroy the planet. Well, so Kelso's down there, right? And he's got to set up the switch and he's got to be the guy that flips the switch. So <laughs> are you going to get beamed up? Are you just going down with the, you know, with the whole explosion thing? They yeah, don't uh... really explain that, but he does set up this switch so that he can flip it. And then I, I assume they beam him up. And he says, if he gets free, you have to flip the switch. Something to that effect. So it sounds to me like a suicide mission. And the actor's <laughs> probably like, gosh, darn it. I was hoping to be a regular on this series. <laughs> 
Kirk is talking to Scotty and Scotty says something about, did you get the laser rifle? I beamed down and he's like, I didn't ask for it. And then Spock comes walking around with this laser rifle and uh, Spock pulls Kirk aside and says, in my opinion, we'll be lucky to repair the ship and get away in time. Hey, Dana, we're running up against the clock here. So we're going to continue this episode next week. So please tune in for part two of our episode on Where No Man Has Gone Before. We would love to hear your thoughts, comments, and suggestions. You can reach us at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-A-M-N-I-T Jim podcast at gmail.com. You can also join the discussion on Facebook and Twitter. Until next week, for Dan and Dana, live long and prosper.